The Kern Institute Podcast Network. So during COVID, right when COVID happened, we had an OSCE plan and we had to do a head-to-toe OSCE via video on Zoom. So they had to like basically like orate like their exam. Like first I would do this and I'm looking for this and blah, 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 blah. Right. And so we had to like watch the videos. These students would submit the videos. We had to watch the videos and like whatever. Okay. And there's this one student who was like in his basement and it was like this interrogation light and it was completely black background. And of course COVID like he hadn't had a haircut in like forever. So he, he just looked it looked like um like Silence of the Lambs, you know, like he was like he had like, been trapped in a basement was, for a while. Like, <laughs> first, I'm gonna I, This is not a very good cover story, Anita. I'm not buying this. Welcome to Medical Education Matters. It's spring here. Uh, well, you know, actually, we're recording this on March 15th. And looking outside here in Milwaukee, it is definitely not spring. I think it's probably the same way up in Wausau, where two of our panelists are. But in any case, our topic for today is spring cleaning. So spring cleaning, what does that mean for us? There are so many topics that we've considered discussing, but haven't found a way to fit in. So for this show, we're cleaning up our ideas list. Each of us, and here on our panel, it's our regular panel, we have Herodotus Ellenus, Anita Bublik-Anderson, and Jeff Amundsen. We've picked a semi-random topic to toss out to the group for discussion. But before we do that, Anita, do you have an icebreaker question for us? I do have an icebreaker question. And of course, I was, I'm was i referencing a podcast that I listened to where um, uh, an author named Nick Nick Gray, he wrote a book called Two Hour Cocktail Party. And icebreakers are an essential part of a two hour cocktail party. And his breakfast, his his uh, go to icebreaker is the breakfast of champions. So you start with your name, what do you do for work? And then the icebreaker question, which he would he would lead with, you know, what do you have for breakfast? Like, what's your favorite breakfast? Um, so. I'm going to start and I'll say, hi, I'm Anita. I'm clinical faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Central Wisconsin. And um, my I, the what, what I prefer for breakfast is still cut oats with berries and Greek yogurt. And the follow-up question is, what's your marker for when spring comes? Like, well, how do you know it's actually spring? And I haven't seen it yet, but um, I've heard it. And it's when I hear more diversity of birds chirping when I'm walking my dog. I will say Herodotus, you go next. That's awesome. I I love to, I'm Herodotus. I'm a professor, a clinical professor in the University of Minnesota. And um, breakfast, wow, so many good breakfasts, but I like mixed cereal. I am not on one cereal person. It has to be diverse cereal all mixed together with fruit and milk. So that's kind of my usually go-to breakfast. And you asked about marker for when spring comes. Um, yeah, wishful thinking for me, but uh, I have always associated spring with Easter. So I grew up in Cyprus and spring is associated with flower blooming. Easter celebration is really key in orthodoxy. And don't take me wrong, I am 
not necessarily religious, but those childhood memories of just growing up with the flowers blooming. It's no matter where I am, snow or not, and there is plenty of snow in Minneapolis. Uh, it's what kind of makes me think that spring is coming. All right, I'm going to go next. So, so I'm Michael Brown, program manager at the Kern Institute here at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, breakfast every morning, just about, I have peanut butter and jelly on toast. And uh, the specific peanut butter, the brand I'm neutral on, but it has to be stir your own. I don't want anything pre-mixed. I want to stir my peanut butter up, wear out my forearm, and then keep that peanut butter in the refrigerator so the oil doesn't separate from the peanuts. That's key for me. In terms of spring, starting in mid-February, I'm done wearing winter coats. I don't care what the temperature is. Uh, I will put on multiple layers so that I can wear a spring coat. And that is how I know that I am ready for spring because that winter coat is going away and I am outside shivering like crazy. Jeff, how about you? Well, first off, I'm Jeff Amundsen. I am a foundational science uh, professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Central Wisconsin campus, along with Anita. Um, my breakfast at Champions, huh? Well, often it starts with burnt toast and jam and perhaps a hard-boiled egg on the side with a glass of water and a cup of coffee. Um, that's pretty much my standard go-to. If Actually, often I don't even eat breakfast, so... Um, but trying to be mindful of you know, wellness in the sense that that's a good way to starting out your day for sure. Um, how I see spring starting out is, is there's one step that says, oh, it's coming. There's another, you know, it's starting. There's another step that says it's coming. And there's another step that says it's here. Um, the one that says it's here for me is when the chirpers are out. So the little frogs that go peep, 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 sound like they're chirping. And that's definitely spring is here. All right, let's jump into our topics here. So Anita, you have the first topic. This is an item that we saw on your list of potential things to discuss for our podcast where we talked about the games we play. And this, you need to give us more details, but my understanding is this game is a game you actually created yourself. Yeah, I'm a game developer now. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> but, yeah, so I can add that to my CV. But um, so like during COVID, we started doing, um, we, we couldn't, on our campus, we were going over to the technical college to do some simulations. And one of them was our labor simulation. And they had this really like kind of high sim, high resolution labor simulation called Noel. And, you know, I would take the students over there and we pretend to have lots of babies. And uh, with COVID, we couldn't go over there. And so we had to develop our own um, kind of simulations on our on our own camp on our new campus. So um, so the clerkship director, um, Ellen, Dr. Ellen Schumann, she, you know, as an obst obst obstetrician, she, you know, said, hey, let's let's do this here. And so she wrote a grant. And we got the materials and we started doing simulations for um, vaginal deliveries and C-section deliveries. And then that went over really well and she wanted to develop it more. And so we came up, we brainstormed and came upon a topic of induction of labor. She's a pediatrician, I'm an obstetrician, we get each other, we are in the room a lot together and there's a lot of morbidity associated with induction of labor and it's a very common practice. So she's coming from the standpoint of, you know, it's risky for babies. Uh, if we're inducing them, especially if they're early and like the um, 
the woman isn't like her cervix isn't ripe enough, like her body's not quite ready. And then you have a prolonged induction, which can go on for like 24 or more hours. And then after all of this, then maybe a day or so later, you end up with a C-section and all of those associated complications. So it's a topic really near and dear to our hearts. And um, so I thought, well, instead of a lecture, it'd be really great if we could somehow get the students act, you know, kind of involved and engaged. And I was thinking like, well, do, do we do like a scavenger hunt? Do we run around campus trying to find like the dilated cervix? Like, so, but that didn't, it was kind of hard to conceptualize. So I'm like, well, couldn't it be a game and, you know, make it kind of fun and interactive so that they're invested in the outcome and the process. And so, you know, I kind of sat on it for a while and, let it marinate and, uh, you know, um, went through all the different games that I played, you know, as a kid from Monopoly to Candyland and, um, shoots and ladders, but like the visuals there for a gravid patient, like, isn't really good. You don't want pregnant women climbing up ladders or, you know, riding down slides. So, and it was really kind of over too soon. So, you know, through the whole development of it, um, I kind of like took little pieces from different games and um, was heavily influenced by, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and also Bob Ross because he's my muse. We call the game Laborland and Bob Ross is a muse because he's he's very chill. Like he's got a game that is about like happy little colors and, you know, it didn't, doesn't have to be a competitive, like you're the winner, you had your baby first. You know, it's like, hey, we're all in this together and we're going to support each other. So, um, so yeah, so I had a friend who's, um, has a background in, in graphic design and gaming actually. And um, she helped me kind of with the, with development of the board and how it progresses. And we tested it with our, our husbands, actually, we all played the game. And um so the, the layout is basically there's like four players. There are, there are four women in a labor support group. They're starting out kind of the end part of their pregnancies together. Um, and each and it's a, kind of a square and they progress through these different weeks of pregnancy. Every time they're pregnant, an additional week, they get like bonus points. Um, and they there's trivia questions related to, you know, stuff surrounding uh, term pregnancy and deliveries and inductions. And um, there's like kind of bonus things that happen and like penalty things that happen. So those are like the red cards. So things can happen like, hey, late spring blizzard, which kind of happens all the time around here in March, uh, you do a home delivery and, or you, you know, you're, you want to get induced because you have packer tickets and, <laughs> and, uh, that's a penalty because like, no, don't do that. Um, so then, and, you know, certain key points are emphasized surrounding like um, appropriateness, like how do you time it and, you know, who's who's a candidate and then some randomness is thrown in there too because you roll the dice and that's like your outcome. You either get a C-section or a vaginal delivery. And then there's sort of this like sinkhole of the NICU which is very time and resource intensive. And um, everybody at play has to like pay into the health system uh, for each time for like each 
like turn that you're there. So, um, yeah. So, but nobody like finishes first because when everybody's like, you're waiting for all your, you know, cohorts to come together into the recovery ward and, um, you can like build up. There's also like two resources of health system resources and community resources. And that's sort of an homage to our Dean, uh, Dr. Dodson, who wants our campus to be the most community engaged campus. So there's like a shift of resources between health system and community, mostly towards health system during the you know pregnancy and delivery. And then when you're in recovery, waiting for your, your friends to, you know, have their baby and join you, you can build up community resources. And at the end of the game, uh, when everybody's in recovery, you like count your own resources, you can add them all into the community resources and the team, if there's more than one team in play, um, the team with the most community resources, they like win the game, but everybody gets to go home with their baby. So um, I bought a bunch of little, little stuffies from Oriental Trading Company. And we had a little like nursery at the front of the room and doc, Dr. Um, Schumann was at the front, the pediatrician, and they could like pick out which baby they wanted. Some had twins. And um, then we did pictures with a little bubble machine. It was like a little celebration. So, um, so yeah, that's the the game I developed. It's just about a year old, actually, because it launched, we played it the first time in May last year. And so right about a year ago, I was like in, you know, big time kind of game development, kind of thinking it through and taking little trips to Walmart, finding all my little little trinkets that, that, part, that are part of the game. So yeah, so that's my game and we're going to be testing it. I have sites around the country that are interested in testing it and hopefully I can apply for a learning resource grant and maybe get some money to work on developing it more. So that's that's my game. That's incredible, Anita. I, I'm sure also fame and fortune is, yeah, is right. shortly in your future. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Herodotus and Jeff have questions too, but I just wanted to know what's when you compare students learning this material in lecture format or whatever previous formats were used, even the simulation format, what happens differently with the game? How do students respond differently? Yeah. So because they are actually playing a patient and most of our learners, uh, you know, in medical school, like they themselves aren't parents, maybe they've never even been on to labor and delivery. And so it's immersive and um, it builds empathy for that patient experience and um you know there's there's a lot of a lot of things coming at women and the community during pregnancy a lot of like competing interests and so it, it kind of highlights that so i mean i could i could let i i could have just done a lecture it would have been a whole lot easier <laughs> but um you know at the end of, we did a debrief and it was like okay so who had a complication and some people were like you know, I got herpes and I needed to get a C-section or like I had twins or I was in the NICU and, you know, these are things that happen. So the, um, so they had, the report was that they were, they had fun. They were, it was engaging because, you know, who doesn't like playing games? So are you dropping off the podcast group when you gain a lot of fame and money? Is that how this is going to go? No, I'm always with you guys. Have no fear. Maybe we maybe we launch a Laborland podcast. Maybe. <laughs> so Anita, it's I, I have so many questions, but you know, one uh, 
kind of Michael alluded to students' engagement, my question is even more on essentially the assessment of where where are the students going to be before and after and mm -hmm. their knowledge and their ability in perhaps problem solving because mm -hmm. I think is one of the pieces that we try to give them that problem-based learning discussion. I'm yeah. curious of where whether this is the next part of the development for yeah. you with the testing. Yeah, great question. So, um, and that came up, I presented this at two conferences this past year and, you know, that did come up. Um, I, you know, I was so focused on like just getting this out there by my deadline of play. I didn't even like think about like, oh, let's study it. It was like, I gotta, you know, go to the printer, pick it up and literally got all everything assembled like the day before like we were this, the session. So, so like the next step is, um, I do have a, a survey just for like kind of QI and also um, it was suggested that I do like a pre and a post for learners, especially at the medical student level learner um, to, you know, to determine that. But I, I will say this, um, APCO, which is the um, Association of professors of obstetrics and gynecology. I think that's what it is, but it's sort of like the teachers of, of obstetrics. Um, they, uh, they had, they created an app called well mom. And what we've, we've tagged with our clerkship students is that they, you know, take this experience of labor land and then apply the, um, they follow a patient along, you know, on their clerkship, who presents for induction and it lists, it talks about, you know, what's their Bishop score? Like, how are they dated? Like, do they have any other kind of, you know, other medical issues that are coming into play for the reason of the induction? And so they like, they follow this, the, the patient. So the intention is for them to, well, you know, some, some hospitals in the area have an, an extremely high um, induction rate and, and so it can be really hard for a learner to question, to be like, hey, so why is this patient here for an induction? Like, why are we doing this induction? Why were their dates changed? Or, you know, um, and they can follow, they can use the knowledge from, from Laborland, from the um, evidence and guidelines that are published through like March of Dimes and um, ACOG and, you know, applied into the APCO app and kind of determine and assess themselves, like what, what's going on and is this, what's the decision-making involved? So it's, it can be a slippery slope, but um, ultimately, um, yeah. So pre and a post would be the next thing. I want to key in on the point you made about, you know, it would have been easier just to do a lecture. I think, and I'll use this as a setup for when, when I get to my point about learning styles, but you know, that's the, I think the crux of what makes a teacher, a teacher is, is that more challenging methodology. I think not only enhances the student learning, but also enhances the teacher's um, capacities and 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 uh, ability to to uh, apply those capacities in, in that situation and yeah teaching isn't easy right like real down to earth get your feet in everything else dirty kind of thing is much more time consuming than um 
that many people realize, I think, because often it's that schema that you describe. Oh, you just get up in front of the classroom and you say a bunch of stuff and that's teaching. When mm-hmm. I think your game really is an, is an exemplar of what it takes to be a maybe cliche word here, effective teacher, but uh, kudos on you for taking on that challenge. And, 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 you know, and I just want to recognize that. Thanks. Yeah. It was super fun to do too. I mean, just my own learning involved and like, Hey, how do I, how do I put a game together? You know, like I was my, my friend who's our, our husbands work together and our dogs play together. So like, that's how I know her. And um, it was like, Hey, can you, can you like, are you interested? Do you want to like be involved in this? Her name is Michael Schultz. And uh, she was like, yeah, sure. But she was in the middle of finals. She's getting a master's in data science. And she was like, hey, yeah, sure. Let's let's do it. And I'm like, so, OK, thanks. She was extremely generous and um, with her time and patience with me. And and so, yeah, it was a learning process for me too. like what's involved, the creative end of it, of, you know, things that are just lying around in the cupboard of different games and and then there's a whole other level of like game theory and uh game design and gamification i mean it's just like this it's so much bigger really interesting the board game industry today seems to be all about coming up with a successful board game i mean obviously that's step one as if that's so easy but once you've achieved that then thinking about ways that you can expand the game Mm -hmm. Partly to get people to buy more things, of course, but also to add more uh, more replay value to the game. I put in the chat here, which you may have seen, you know, a breastfeeding uh, yeah. expansion pack for the game. Mm-hmm. Talk about community resources and other things and gathering mm-hmm. those, trying to have that support and the complexities between the hospital system and the information you're getting there versus information you might get other places. Um, any other expansion pack ideas, Anita? Yeah. So we thought even about um, like different languages, different um, like different cards that could um, align with the, you know, kind of patient population of or certain community issues that are going on. Like if it's an urban environment, a rural environment, um, we have a large Hmong population. One of the characters of this game is Hmong. And so I wanted to highlight um, that diversity and so if there's a community of a lot of like asian americans or um i don't know african americans or you know and it could be expanded into um languages like internationally also or even different learners it could be nursing students pas nurses faculty uh, even um in like a birthing education um classroom so that women in this situation uh, you know, in pregnancy, you could learn about like all these competing possible, you know, interests and possibilities of like, what could outcomes be? Because it's not always, it's not always butterflies and, you know, flowers like pregnancy, it, 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 it holds some risk for women. Um, and like, it's real. And I don't think we actually even consent and like talk about it very much that how risky and dangerous it can actually be. And that, you know, we do a really good job taking care of patients, um, you know, in the hospital. Um, but there are uh, there there can be risks and complications to the patient and their the baby. That's a, some what some call culturally responsive or culturally relevant teaching. 
So good on you for that. That's a you know focal point even in the in the new curriculum that we're developing at Medical College of Wisconsin, which is to have inclusion represented through that very methodology that you're describing. So good on you for that. Thanks. I love the idea of the the interprofessional education focus and how that could be brought in, and then even to have it as part of patient education. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think about you know preparing for labor and delivery with my wife, both of us who were among the folks with relatively little familiarity with that, you know, not around babies, not around uh, mm-hmm. people and, and with, with knowledge of their delivery experience, really. Um, and the idea of playing a game to explore those things is a really intriguing possibility. Mm-hmm. Thanks. So Jeff, you brought up learning styles and I want to hear you talk next. Um, I think, I think this podcast is going to end up being a two-parter here. So let's, Jeff, let's have yours be kind of the second spring cleaning topic we tackle for this episode, and then we'll we'll get another episode where we can have some more spring cleaning topics. So you brought up learning styles, and that's what we want to hear you talk a little bit about. Learning styles are a big thing uh, in, in education, but they may not be the big thing that perhaps all of our audience uh, fully understands. As I was preparing to talk about this today, I was reflecting on, you know, first, what does spring cleaning mean? You know, is it a, is, you know, for some of us, it's a process of opening up all the windows in the house and cleaning up the house from all the dust of winter, so to speak. And some of us, it's a process of going out into the garage and, you know, getting ready to toss, you know, at the end of the driveway, we have uh, the spring cleanup or the town pays for, uh, you know, large items to be discarded kind of thing. So it's a process of discarding things maybe that, you know, you've been holding on to for a while. I thought it's also, you know, reflective of what mother nature does, right? Like every year we come back around to these various transition points and it's a transition from, Oh, uh, you know, this is being used as this right now, right? Uh, the grounds is simply insulated, so to speak, from the snow and being prepared for spring coming up. And then now we're going to use it for something else. And so it could also be part of like a repurposing. I'll hold on to this thing and use it for something else. And I didn't want it to become a, you know, the, the, the former where we're just kind of tossing things out and, and moving on from the topic. I think learning styles, Michael, as you point out, is, is something that's a big component of a lot of teaching, teaching methodology today. And, and so, um, just wanted to kind of maybe bring it back up as an opportunity to kind of dust it off and and come back to a deeper level later on. Um, Notably, we will be doing a themed uh, issue of the transformational times around this topic as well. So kind of take a pros and cons of it, but for now, we'll just talk about the basic uh, ideas and and what we, what we see. And, um, you know, So when someone comes to me and says, I, oh, I have a, you know, I'm an auditory learner, I'm a visual learner, I'm a tactile learner. One of the first things I asked them was, is explain to me how then you're not utilizing all of those things right now as we're sitting here engaging one another, right? I mean, you, you see me, I see you, you hear me, I hear you. You're aware that you're sitting or tactically stimulated by something in your environment. So ultimately it boils down to that, right? What we found out is, like the brain, uh, things are localized but distributed and things interact with each other. And so while there might be a preference to uh, engage information in a particular way, um, it doesn't mean that a person should get locked into thinking that this is my style and the only way that I can learn, uh, which then leads us to the next question of how does that lead to a fixed mindset 
of, oh, I can only be an auditory learner any other way, just ain't going to work for me. So that's where I'm at. And in comparison to saying, oh, well, you know, I prefer things come visually to me. However, I can, you know, sit and listen to a podcast and uh, simply gain a lot of information that way as well, too. So um, I think that's what we need to kind of do to dispel the, the myth that there's a one, we each have one particular way of learning something. Um, so that's really what I want to touch on today is just kind of get that out <laughs> from storage, so to speak, in, at springtime here, dust it off and start thinking about it again. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, and much of this goes to the idea of differentiation is, is something that came on. And it's, it's not necessarily new. We've been talking about individualized differentiation, personalized, you know, since the 1970s, even some can argue long before that when John Dewey uh, came along and said, uh, hey, you know, we got to allow people to construct uh, their learning uh, in a way that's meaningful to them. And so some can even argue that that's a that's part of the, the process now. Um, so, yeah, so I think just touching on the idea that we all learn in a variety of ways um some ways we prefer more than others however the others do afford us opportunity to gain capacity uh in, in those uh ways of learning other the ways of learning too as well so so yeah just kind of touching on that briefly to kind of start to dispel this idea that you know learning styles are a thing really the the science has kind of debunked it and um said that's nah, not really what we think it is even the differentiated learning um, the personalized learning, the individualized learning um, doesn't really hold to what we would expect it to do on a large scale. I think it's important to emphasize that when we think about some of these effects, um, and I learned this when I was teaching uh, what we call abnormal psychology. I struggle with that word too, but um, you know, behaviors that are atypical, we, uh, we, we often think that there's a cure-all uh, in this case, also a cure-all for learning. And the reality is, you know, we might see a, a, a clinical trial of particular medication to say, help with schizophrenia. Now, it might not reach significant statistical value, right, in the sense of P equals 0 0.05 or whatever. However, it might have a meaningful impact on individuals. Um, so perhaps when we look at the data, you know, considering the more individual, did it help this person? Well, if it helped that person, then what does the p-value matter, right? So that kind of thinking around clinical applications and such like that, in the same way when we think about, I think, educating is these interventions might not reach everybody and on average might not reach everybody. However, they probably reach some. So keep that in mind as we you know, have a critical approach to what learning styles are. Um, yeah, just some pretty you know, general thoughts about that right now is, again, just to kind of get things stirring. Um, if people are interested, there's a really kind of interesting website called Eon, A-E-O-N, has a lot of good essays from reputable individuals. Um, you know, I, I won't use the term peer review, but they are peer critiqued before they're posted on the website. But there's a good article on the evidence is clear, learning styles theory doesn't work. So check that out as a, as a good historical and uh, contemporary uh, thinking around, around what we define as learning styles. Um, but like I said, my concern is, is that, and I haven't found any research on it, is whether these fixed mindsets are also a, a, a type of, you know, fixation on, on learning style. 
uh, when we start thinking about, uh, you know, Dweck's work on growth mindsets. And, and of course, we can question that too. But, um, but for now, let's just leave it at the learning styles are not necessarily a thing. They're just a preference. Um, and often I would say too, is it seems intuitively like a great idea because we all come, or many of us come from educational systems that are structured around the teacher as the focus. And so when we as parents start to hear of programs that are more student-centric, we have a bias perhaps because, well, I grew up in a situation where they didn't respect me at all and didn't recognize me as an individual. I wasn't an agent in the learning. And now I have kids who have the opportunity to be agents in their learning. Heck yeah, I'm going to support that, whether the science says it's good enough or not. You know, So um, a lot of other things playing in. Uh, again, that would, that would require a more deeper conversation than what we have time for right now. But that's kind of where I'm thinking is that as I dust off this topic and, you know, Get, uh, get the closet cleaned out and the garage cleaned out for spring, so to speak. That's so interesting. Well, and I, I want to emphasize too, tie it back to Anita's point quickly here, is that that cultural response of teaching, that's like the next, we talk about differentiation, individualization, personalization, which learning styles fall within that stuff, right? That we address the individual as an individual with their all their experiences, all their background and uh other attributes of the individual is what Anita, I think, was getting at with her game is that, look, this has to be you know, culturally responsive. That's part of someone's experience, their lived experience, right? So um, so that in itself, too, is another, you know, uh, development from this idea of thinking about the individual. But just to add that as a critical point, I think, too. Yeah, and Jeff, one of the things that you mentioned, a couple of key points that I got out of what you said about learning styles. One is the preferential piece is not necessarily the you know that fixed mind. We I'm I'm a visual learner. It doesn't mean that that's all. I learn with, I learn by touching, I learn by hearing, you know, so all the rest of the pieces are involved. Is that just that preferential way of learning is an important piece for us as educators, I think, because I think that's one of the pieces as Anita alluded to, as you alluded to, that we create this educational environment that allows for learners with a preference in a learning style to understand perhaps the topic more in depth. It doesn't have to be one way, but we create these pieces so that each one of us can um, be more engaged, have better understanding without necessarily saying, oh yeah, lecture is the way to go. Audio is the way to go visual is the way to go it's all of the above right and i think yeah. it's that that's a very critical point that needs to be shared with the learner too is that we have a purpose for doing this it's not meant to make everything okay meaning like oh it's okay that i only learn this way for example i have been working with a student and uh and another faculty member has been working with that student and the, the other faculty member had them doing a self-assessment of their learning style. Oh, and then the student's like, oh, I'm an auditory learner. From my perspective, um, if that isn't explained to the student in depth, like this conversation, like, okay, yes, it's more of a preference. It's not like what you're locked into. 
I want to encourage you to think in other ways as well and, and, and try to work on that. Because I think what can happen is that can become an, oh, you just confirmed everything I thought about myself and I'm an auditory learner and I don't have to try on anything new mm. because, well, this test confirmed that. And now one faculty member saying it's okay to think this way. And another faculty member saying, whoa, 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 time out, time out here. So it can all of a sudden become a barrier now, right, to helping the student like think about what they're learning in, in a way that's going to be conducive to performing at a higher level, right? So um, especially if the students had success, and that's yeah. often what we see with the learning style is that, oh, it's a comfort zone for me. I'm not going to get outside my comfort zone. I've had a lot of success. Look, I got a, I got a graduated top of my high school class. I got, you know, I graduated from a major institution. Everything points to like, I'm an auditory learner. This is how I really succeed. And if it gets confirmed and the more it gets confirmed, the harder it is, of course, to dig away from that um, bias and become a master adaptive learner and recognize when that technique is no longer really having the impact it might have um, in previous learning environments. Um, and now in medical school, a completely different learning environment, it might not play out. And if it's getting confirmed, we got it, we, we might be faced with even more challenges. So I think, Rod, it's your point about explaining the thinking behind this is important for, for learners. So so this this reminds me of a couple things. I mean, the theme of the show is spring, you know, spring cleaning, cleaning out the closet, the garage, whatever it is. But spring is also a time of transition and transitions are, are challenging. Like you might get a foot and a half of snow and, you know, your your car might hit a snowbank and you know like in your driveway and not that this just happened to us or anything but so like they can be challenging these transitions and so learning like knowing enough about yourself like hey i'm like super comfortable in winter like that's great i have all my gear and like i'm in my comfort zone there but oh guess what things are going to be changing and you know we're going to have to learn to become that master adaptive learner that that's like part of the process that you have to you have to be a little uncomfortable and that's you know part of where i see the the challenge of incorporating medical humanities into the curriculum because you you're it, we we bring the medical students or at least we did in the discovery curriculum we brought them to the art museum and they would you know be in the galleries at the Woodson art museum and be challenged by you know what was there like tell me what you see like and some of it was a little, it was awkward and it was hard because it's a different environment. It's, it's not a space where uh, medical students traditionally have spent a lot of time. And so looking at something and thinking about something, interpreting it and, you know, talking about what you see, what, what you're getting out of it can be a really hard place. And I think it's, it's a safe environment. And I think it's absolutely necessary for to to encourage that master adaptive learning part of it. So I hope this is this is something we can continue to um, advocate for in um, in the fusion curriculum. I think it's essential. Yeah, and I think a quote summarizes what you said. From, I forget her name now, and I apologize. I, I want to say Hannah was her first name. She was a form, former president of the University of Chicago. Hannah Gray. She was my, she was the president when I graduated from University of Chicago. Oh, wow. Fantastic. 
Well, she was quoted as saying, education isn't meant to make you comfortable. It's meant to make you think. Yep, indeed. That's what she said. Hannah, love it. What a great place to end our spring cleaning podcast. Um, I think this just has to be part one because we've got some other cool topics that we want to clean out of our closets and our garages and dump on the curb for the, the city to haul away. Maybe that's not quite the metaphor that I wanted, but you get the idea. I, I think it yeah. makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's still so, winter here. So I'm not, I'm not, I think we got time. Well, so this is our initial little dump, Michael. It's our initial little dump. We're going to, if you're like me, I run out back out to the curb and have a lot of second thoughts and re-grab stuff. Like. Plus the, uh, the back door out the, out the basement is still covered in snow. So we can't get the really big stuff out just yet. The snow has to melt a little bit more. There you go. There you go. Well, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Brown. And on behalf of Herodotus Alanis, Jeff Amundsen, and Anita Bublik Anderson, thanks so much for listening. If you get a chance, leave us a five-star review. It helps other people find the show. And we look forward to bringing you more great content soon. <laughs>